stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. It used to be a rare thing to be able to hear the unfiltered thoughts of a serial killer. Netflix documentaries, books, articles, and this kind of content is all over the place now for those who can stomach it. That being said, the sort of content only reaches so far. You see flocks of information about the usual suspects, the Dahmers, or the Bundys of the world, but not often do we hear about the evils that live in our own town, city, or province. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, we delve into the confession tapes of one of Ontario's most notorious serial killers, Elizabeth Wetlaufer. Wetlaufer was a nurse, someone in a position of trust, someone who had lives in her hands, and someone who chose to take several of them. While working in nursing homes around southwestern Ontario, Elizabeth Wetlaufer killed eight senior patients and assaulted many more. These tapes you're about to hear are detailed and honest, so we warn you, what you will hear throughout this podcast may be disturbing. You don't often hear about the crimes through the mouth of the killer. On this episode of the 519 Podcast, you will. Here's your host, Haley Chang. Elizabeth Wetlaufer was born June 10, 1967. Her parents, Doug and Hazel Parker, raised Elizabeth, or Beth as she liked to be called, in Woodstock along with her brother. Growing up, it was a completely normal childhood, seemingly with no signs of what was to come. When she graduated high school, as you will hear, she was motivated to find a successful path in life. I graduated grade 13, went for a year of law school, not law school, sorry, journalism school. Okay. And, uh, then uh, went to uh, Bible College, uh, London Baptist Bible College in London. Graduated with a degree in uh, counseling, with a bachelor's degree in counseling. And then um, discovered that that's not going to be, wasn't really going to get me a lot as far as work wise and career wise. And so I went back to uh, here in Kirk High School for a year. And I took a year of math and sciences and went on to um, Conestoga College. And, and, uh, they have, it's in Kitchener, but they have Stratford campus, so I went there for the three years. Okay. And then when I graduated there, I worked in a place called Geraldton. From 1995 until 2007, Wetlaufer was employed by a number of institutions and agencies in the healthcare field, eventually as a registered nurse. But things started to change for her in 2007 when her marriage crumbled. When my ex and I broke up in 2007, I was already taking the medication for my, my borderline personality disorder. And I was so angry. And it was like a voice said inside me, I'll use you, don't worry about it. And the different times that I have caused people's deaths or caused them discomfort through the um, through the influence, I believe it was the influence of that voice or whatever it was. It wasn't a voice in my head, it was a voice in here. And when I would do it afterwards, I would hear like a laughter in my chest. Elizabeth was worn down by the day-to-day pressures of being a nurse, as well as the fallout from her failed marriage. She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, struggling with anger, anxiety, mood swings, and substance abuse, both drugs and alcohol. That same year, she took a job at Crescent Care, a long-term care home in Woodstock. It was there where her substance abuse became completely out of hand. 
She would come to work intoxicated, even passing out drunk during one shift. Sometimes she would even steal medication from work. Eventually, her co-workers and superiors caught on to the not-so-discreet transgressions. During her time at Caressing Care, she was suspended four times. Clearly, she was not in the right headspace to be working at a long-term care home, but no one could have seen what came next. While working at Caressing Care, Wetlawford killed seven residents. She was angry with her life, her job, and her patients. Wetlawford felt overworked, sometimes covering a night shift all on her own. It was during these night shifts that she often took her victims' lives. The first being 84-year-old James Silcox. James was a Second World War veteran and had been married for 63 years. He was a father of six children, a grandfather, and a great-grandfather. He had dementia at the time of his death. Tell me about your, your knowledge of, of James and, and your daily interactions during a shift with him. Um, I didn't see him every time. He wasn't always my patient. I just knew from what uh, people had said that he would grab the, the nurse's uh, breasts and buttocks and he would say horribly inappropriate things about his wife that now he was there, you know, um, he was going to fuck all of us, she was going to fuck all of us, Doc, and just would say different things. And he did touch me inappropriately once. And where was that? On, on your the breast. On your breast. Okay. And, um... The, the diagnosis of of his health at the, at the time you were caring for him, do you remember? He was post-hip surgery and he had dementia. Do you remember how old he was approximately? No, I don't. I didn't see his face. In the 80s? Yeah. Okay. And, sorry, he was not a diabetic? Not a diabetic. And, sorry, you said he had dementia? Yeah. How about my surgery? I gave him a dose of uh, 50 milligrams of insulin. Not not diabetic. So I went into it, I used a borrowed insulin pen, borrowed insulin, and gave him an insulin shot. And at 3.30, the PSO, well, throughout the night he was yelling out, I love you and I'm sorry. And not, to, not to me, but just you could hear him calling out in his room, and that's what he was calling out. Mm-hmm. And then at 3.30, the uh, PSW came to me and said that he was gone. So I did what we're supposed to do. I went and listened to his heart and chest. Called the doctor, called the family because that's what they wanted. Family came in to sit with them for a while. Doctor came in and uh, said that his cause of death was from uh, an embolism due to his uh, post hip. He'd had a he'd had surgery. hip surgery. Doctor ruled an embolism due to post hip surgery. When you in, where did you get the insulin from for James for Mr. Stilcox? You said you had taken some insulin. Um, where did you get those? The insulin was kept in a fridge in the medication room. We had two medication rooms. Insulin was kept in a fridge in the medication room. And uh, extra pens were kept in the drawer. So you could just say somebody who had someone admitted and you needed a pen in a hurry. So you just put the insulin in the pen and, and put the needle on and dial up the dose and give it. And how was that documented to know that, so that Crescent Care would know that you were taking that? Insulin. They didn't keep track of him. Okay. So it was just a, something that was available for the nurses use when they knew that it was appropriate for the certain patients. Yes. Now each patient has their own insulin. Right. And maybe somebody noticed, somebody may have noticed that a lot of insulin was missing if a lot was used, but I was always careful to use different people. 
Had the insulin been more carefully monitored, she may have been caught after her first murder. She admitted as much herself. It's part of what allowed her to get away with it for almost a decade, because murder by insulin was completely unexpected. Her next victim was 84-year-old Maurice Moe Granite. He was a tinsmith from Tilsonburg with lots of family and friends. So tell me a little bit about Maurice. This says that this occurred in September or four October of 2018. Uh, sorry, 2007. And this was at Crescent Care? Yeah. Okay, tell me a little bit about your interactions with Maurice. He was another one who liked to grab breasts and asses. Okay. He was sometimes a patient of mine. See, at that time, I wasn't, I didn't have a set floor that I worked on. I worked on all the different floors of the nurse, kind of filling in. Okay. So, uh, he was, one afternoon I was working with him and he did grab me. And uh, again, I got that feeling inside that this is his time to go. So I gave him an overdose of insulin after supper. And uh, I believe he died the next day. Did you ever have any concerns that he didn't pass away while you were working and that, you know, physician may arise? No, I know I didn't. I, well, yes, I did a little bit. I always wondered if they'd find the site where I gave the shot and something, you know, they'd, there'd be an investigation. I always wondered that. Right. But other than that, no. And even though it, it passed through your mind, did you just and continued just, on about your duties? Yep. Okay. And do you remember what part of the body he would have been injected in? Oh, maybe the leg. When insulin is administered to a patient without diabetes, it drops their blood sugar levels. That can lead to a coma or potentially death. The signs of insulin overdose weren't invisible, but given the age of Wetlawfer's victims, their deaths were always attributed to natural causes. Despite this, she was always worried that their deaths would arouse suspicion. Every time I walked in after somebody passed away, I always wondered if this day I'm going to get caught. What kind of consequences play through your head? Like if you, if, damn, I'm, I'm caught in the gigs up. What, what kind of consequences do you think yeah. you're going to face if, if that were to happen fired, back in 2011? Fired, jail, um, no more nursing lessons. That's exactly what I'm looking at now. Although I took myself out instead of being fired, but right. jail and no more nursing lessons. Most of her victims were people who suffered from dementia, frustrating the already worn-out Wetlawfer. But as she went along, she began to stray from this pattern. One of her victims was 95-year-old Helen Matheson. Helen was a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and a great-grandmother. She was also very active in her church community. Helen, I don't remember a lot about. She was very quiet, very determined. Um, just seemed to be waiting to die. Mm -hmm. Again, I had that feeling that, you know, this is the one. And um, I made a bit of a fuss about her that night because she was very lucid. And we talked about how much she liked blueberry pie and ice cream. Okay. So on my, on my break, I went to uh, Walmart. I got a small blueberry pie and some ice cream mm -hmm. and brought it to her. And she ate three or four bites. Yes. And then that night, I overdosed her. Because, like I said, I had that feeling that it was her time to go and... What do you mean by that? Do you think she was towards the end of her life at that point? No, that she was the person to go to. Okay. And that was in your mind, in your stomach? In my, Where was that feeling? In my chest. In your chest. After I did it, I got that laughter. Okay. 
When would you feel that laughter? Would you feel it right after you injected it, or once the person passed away? Um, both. Yeah. Both. These are just the stories of three of her victims, but as we mentioned before, there were more. Mary Zurawinski, Helen Young, Maureen Pickering, and Gladys Millard. Elizabeth Wetlawford took the lives of seven seniors at Caressant Care before she was fired in 2014 for medication-related errors when she gave the wrong medication to a patient. Little did they know she had been doing so for essentially her entire time there. Afterwards, Wetlawford's mental health continued to deteriorate. She had a hard time holding down a job, jumping from retirement home to retirement home. During her time at Meadow Park in London, she killed 75-year-old Arbid Horvath. Mr. Horvath was married with two children and three grandchildren. He was an avid hunter, proud of his Hungarian heritage, and had run his tool and dye business for 50 years. Between the years of 2007 and 2014, Elizabeth Wetlawfer killed eight people and assaulted and attempted to kill many more. Her victims were not ready to die. They were still enjoying their time with their family and friends. Wetlawfer cut that time short. You have, of course, on the fourth page here entitled People Who Didn't Die. Mm-hmm. What can you tell me about? Okay, it's Clotilde Adriano. She was the first person I ever gave extra insulin to. Okay. I think I gave her 40, and I just, again, there was that surging, but it wasn't so much that I wanted her to die. It was more, let's see what happens. And I did that to her on more than one occasion. Okay. Uh, Albino was... Sorry, she was prior to Mr. Silcox, right? Yes. So this was the very first person you injected with insulin? Yes. Okay. And we're at Crescent Care? At Crescent Care. And... Her room was where? Her room was in the east wing, second door on the left. Um, then there was Wayne. He was on the north wing. He was he had dementia. He was diabetic. Um, he could be uncooperative. And uh, I gave him a large overdose um, because I thought it was his turn to go. That was Wayne? That was Wayne. And then Wayne, how old was Wayne, sorry? I'd say 60. Okay, so he was younger. He, yeah, he had developmentally, developmental challenges, as well as dementia, as well as being diabetic, um, as well as being handful. Um, and uh, he wanted to die. So, again, that one night I just felt that surging, and, but uh-huh. he didn't die. I think How did you know he wanted to die? He would say it sometimes. While working in a retirement home in Paris, Ontario in 2015, Wetlawfer also tried to kill 77-year-old Sandra Towler. In 2016, Wetlawfer started a job with St. Elizabeth Healthcare, providing nursing care to patients at their homes within Oxford County. That summer, in a private residence in Ingersoll, she injected 68-year-old Beverly Bertram with insulin with the intention of ending Bertram's life. Both of these efforts were unsuccessful. Both Sandra Towler and Beverly Bertram recovered from Wetlawfer's attempt on their lives. How much insulin would it take to kill someone See, that know. wasn't a diabetic? Or I don't know. You don't know that? No. So it was kind of hitting that. You didn't know that as a nurse, that this amount? Or no, there is no set amount. Okay. And I'm just, I, I just yeah. simply just don't know that yeah, answer. There is no right. set amount. Okay. Alright, so different people would react differently to different amounts, is that fair to say? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and would it obviously make a difference if they were diabetic or not a diabetic? Yeah. 
In her confession, Wetlaufer said she knew what she was doing was wrong, but once she felt the surges, she could not control them. Each time she killed, she felt a laughter in her chest. She believed it was God or the devil prompting her to kill. Did you ever get that feeling outside of work? No, never. No? Did you ever get that feeling going to work, knowing that something was going to happen that shift? No, it always happened at work. So, if I were to use the phrase spur of the moment, would it be something that you would just have that feeling come on? Or yeah, I guess you could say it off for the moment, but it would it usually start happening, you know, focused on one patient, and then I would feel that red surging, which is what made me think it was God. Elizabeth Wetlaufer did not hide her crimes. In fact, she told a handful of people. It's uncertain why these people did not turn her into the police. It's likely that they couldn't really believe what they were hearing, and they didn't think that their good friend Beth could be capable of killing. The very first person I ever disclosed it to was um, another girlfriend at the time. Her name was that was after I killed a couple of people and uh, she told me not to do it again or she was going to turn me into the police. Um, that, oh, I couldn't tell you, 2008, I think. Um, and then uh, 2011, when I decided to stop killing, my friend, I told her what I'd been doing and that I had stopped. And then um, I told my pastor, and then after that, I told the, in 2014, um, after Art passed away, I uh, went on a holiday, and uh, that's when I really decided that this had to stop. And so um, I told um, a friend who lives in BC. Um, then uh, I told, when I came back, I got a from a lawyer. And then while I was in the Toronto, well, I was in CAMH, well, I told my friend, before everyone, I've told my cousin, I told my friend, and I told my friend, and then while I was in CAMH, I told um, someone who I thought was a friend. They turned around and called the police to make sure that it had really been dealt with. And I understand that he thought he was doing the right thing. I understand that, but he had said, oh, I won't tell anybody, and I was using him as a resource for support, and he turned around. Right. When I was, when I had already, you know, I would already shared it, so why would he call the police? So why do you think that none of these people confronted police? Maybe they didn't believe me. I don't know. Maybe they just thought, maybe they thought I was doing more something than the patient wanted done. Days after her attempt on Beverly Bertram's life, Wetlaufer learned she was about to be reassigned to work with diabetic children. Worried she was going to kill or harm a child, she quit her job and checked herself into an inpatient drug rehabilitation program at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. I didn't want to hurt anybody anymore, so I also quit my other job. And then I decided, um, well, whatever Friday that was, that, like, I did a lot of looking into how I could get help, because I realized I needed help with whatever this was. Because right. part of me had started to believe that it was the devil, mm -hmm. and part of me thought it might be God, as a purpose 
Wetlaufer confessed her crimes to CAMH staff who then contacted the police. After a lengthy confession to the police, the same one you are hearing part of today, Wetlaufer was formally charged with eight counts of first-degree murder, four counts of attempted murder, and two counts of aggravated assault. She pleaded guilty to all 14 charges against her. And on July 26, 2017, the court held a sentencing hearing where victims and their loved ones were given the chance to read their impact statements. Wetlaufer apologized to the court that day, saying that she was truly sorry. As significant and disturbing as this may be to the people that are going to hear this and, and learn about this, obviously there's a lot of uh, families that we're going to contact yes. and, and speak to. Um, although this wasn't, and I hate to classify it into different areas, but these weren't necessarily violent deaths. Like, how did, do you think these people died peacefully? Did they struggle at all? Um, all the people you've talked about so far died peacefully, in my opinion. And I am sorry. I'm sorry for what the families went through at the time, and I'm extremely sorry for what they're going to go through. I, it's awful. If you could say something to them, what would you say? What can you say to them? That would matter. Um, I'm sorry isn't enough. I should have gotten help sooner. Um, I took something from you that was precious and it was taken too soon. Um, I honestly believed at the time that God wanted me to do it. But I know now that's not true. And, uh, Elizabeth Wetlaufer was sentenced to eight concurrent life terms in prison, with no possibility of parole for 25 years. She is currently serving her time at Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. And although Wetlaufer was eventually caught, many Canadians were outraged that she managed to get away with it for so long. How did no one see the red flags? Why was she allowed to continue to work despite her spotty record? People were angry and lost faith in the province's long-term care system, prompting a public inquiry. The public inquiry report stated that it was systemic vulnerabilities in Ontario's long-term care system that allowed the murders to happen and concluded that Wetlaufer likely wouldn't have been caught if it wasn't for a confession. The report also outlined 91 recommendations for Ontario's Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care, including strengthening security around medication rooms and requiring homes to maintain a complete discipline history of each employee. Elizabeth Wetlaufer opened our eyes to the issues within our long-term care system, but it also made us realize that anyone, even nurses, someone we entrust our families and our loved ones to, can kill. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written and produced by Patrick Magermans and Haley Cheng. It was hosted by Haley Cheng. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.